The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, as we uh, kick off this series, Come Let Us Adore Him, we will be exploring the arrival of Jesus and the announcement of his birth for the next three weeks. And so for each of the next three weeks, we'll be considering how it is that the people uh, who lived in the days of Jesus' birth, how they received this good news and how they responded to it. And today, in particular, we, we're going to be looking at the father of John the Baptist, a man named Zachariah. What was his encounter with God? And how did he respond to the will of God in his life as he receives this announcement? So if, hopefully you've turned in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Luke. And, and as we're, you're, you've got your finger there, I'd like to start us out by thinking about and considering some of the stories of lives like yours and mine. There are four that I'm thinking of from this morning. She was in her retirement years getting close to the finish line, that fourth quarter where she could finally pack up with her husband and travel the world. Very successful businesswoman, well-respected among her colleagues and, and even her superiors. They admired her because of her, her work ethic and reputation. She, she could have just coasted into retirement. She could have exited her career with the American dream still intact, all the hopes of travel and seeing the world and a a life of just enjoying that fourth quarter. But as she began to consider what this fourth quarter might look like, God began to speak and to lead. She wasn't planning on this, but after taking a short-term mission trip, She had this nagging feeling that God wanted to do something in her bigger and better than what she had imagined. And so just before crossing that finish line into retirement, she gave up that career, the success, and she began working in missions. And this would mean a change in stability of her income, letting go to some degree of the American dream in order to value the kingdom of God as greater, but there she is. Second story. He, he's now in his 40s. He, he thought that he would have been married by now. He's cried out to God for years, sometimes in anguish, sometimes in frustration, looking for some resolve, crying out to God and saying to him, why won't you grant me this request? I just want to be married. I feel like I was created to be with someone. But God has been silent on that issue for years. And so... He stopped praying. You see, in order for him to to not have the conflict 
in his heart of, of, of knowing that he has called out to God, that he has cried out to God, and, and God has met his, this request with silence, it's easier for him to just sort of suppress the desire, to just pretend that he doesn't have it, so that he doesn't feel bad about what that might say about God's heart. He's chosen to suppress the longing and pretend that the ache isn't there. Secretly, though, he feels a little bit let down by God. And, and, and if he were able to be really, really honest, he might even feel a little bit resentful. Story number three, she's in her 30s. She's married. She has a plan about what she thinks the future is going to look like. She's envisioned what it will be and where she'll be in life and what her marriage will look like and what, what her family will look like. She's plotted a course for what the future will entail. But without reason or provocation and unexpectedly, her husband abandoned his sacred vows and left the marriage. This is not what she wanted. This is not the life that she planned. And yet God is speaking to her in the midst of her pain and her brokenness. With her plans disrupted, she and God regularly have conversations. They talk about her pain and they talk about the unknown future of what this next chapter in life might look like. But she is in a season of wrestling back and forth. Fourth story. Right in the middle of middle school, he came down with a strange sickness and he seemed to not be getting better. And all of a sudden, little red dots formed on the surface of his skin, sort of all over his body. And so his parents took him to the hospital. And immediately, the hospital began to react with panic and they shipped him up to OHSU up in Portland. And this middle school child went, underwent a battery of tests and it was determined that he had leukemia. Now immediately his parents clung to the promise of Jeremiah 29.11. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. They grabbed a hold of that promise. They, they just began to just trust it and believe it. Repeat it to anyone who would listen. God has promised us. He knows the plans that he has for us. Plans for good, not for evil. And they, and they, they talk about this promise. But eventually, both he and his parents would have to let go of the future that they envi had envisioned for themselves. And they would have to let go of the dreams that they had for the future and embrace what they actually had. And after two years of battling, it would take his young life. Each of these four examples are real world examples. These are people that I know, people that I love, people I've spent time with. These are real examples from the lives of people that I know. And, 
And in each case, each of them has had to come to a crossroads or a, a crisis of sorts. What is the crisis? What is the crossroads? It is simply this reality. What if what God wants is different than what I have wanted? What if what God wants is different than what I have wanted? Now, when you think about that question from the outside, it's easy to be sort of theoretical and theological about how, how easy it is for us to surrender our lives to God. But when you are on the inside of that conflict, I assure you it looks completely different. It feels a little bit more like the crisis of having a limb removed. You see, the desires that we carry, the hopes that we have, the dreams that we've envisioned, those are, are things that we've come to rely on and, and, and things that we've come to place our hope in. And we don't even understand the degree to which we have done that until that thing becomes challenged. It's impossible to understand the weight of those crises until you sit under them. See, here's the deal. Surrendering or submitting to the will of God is not always a joy. <gasps> Did you guys hear that? It's not always a happy thing. It's not always easy. Surrendering or submitting to the will of God is not always our desire. It's not always what we want. The very idea of submission implies that our natural desire is actually for something else. But that there is another desire that we place greater value at, on that is contrary to what we actually want. And we choose to side with this greater value than what we actually desire. And in this case... We place greater priority on God and his will. We choose his will even when it isn't our inclination. And if you walk with God at all, you will inevitably be confronted with this reality in both big and small ways. From the smallest acts of obedience to the greatest moments of sacrifice, willingly submitting your heart and your life to God will require letting go and surrender. So, surrendering and submitting to the will of God is not always a joy, it's not always easy, it's not always our desire. However, it is always the right call. It's always the right call. In fact, for those of you who have been tracking with heritage and our, our understanding of discipleship, we've established eight markers of discipleship. We've identified those for our church. And we, we, we've said that a disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and is leading others to follow Jesus. That's what a disciple is. So to grow in the likeness of Jesus, we will have to deal with this eighth category, this eighth area or aspect of our lives, which is our willing submission to God. 
And, and, and how do we grow in the likeness of Jesus? Well, we look at the example of Jesus and his heart, his desire to submit to his Father, and we take note of where his character and his response is different from our character and our response. We go, okay, how do I partner with the Holy Spirit in becoming more like him? What does that look like? To grow in the likeness of Jesus, we're going to have to deal with this area of our lives. We're going to have to look to his example and ask the Holy Spirit to shape in us a heart like Christ. Matter of fact, if you took the discipleship survey from the app or from our website, you'll have noted the ways in which we've assessed to see whether or not we are willingly submitted to God. There are five statements that we asked you to rate yourself on a scale of one to five. One being, you, you are the least like Jesus in reference to this statement. And five being, you are exactly like Jesus. You exactly mirror his heart. Okay, so there's your scale, one to five. And I want you to take for a moment and just consider before we start our, our, our time together in the scriptures, where do you fall? When, when I compare my life to Jesus... Here are the five statements. I am sensitive, obedient, and responsive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in my life. Where are you? One to five. Here's a second statement. I will, I surrender my will to God even when it's painful or uncomfortable to obey him. One to five. Where are you? My life demonstrates a deep desire to do God's will in all areas. It is not compartmentalized by areas that I allow God to speak into and areas that I don't want his input. I don't have those kind of compartments in my life. Everything is submitted to God. How you doing? One to five. How about this one? I welcome the opportunity for God to tell me that I am not permitted to do something that I desire to do. Or there's the opposite of that, which is the next statement. I welcome the opportunity for God to tell me that there are things that I must do, even though I don't desire to do them. One to five. How you doing? When you compare yourself to Jesus, where do you rate as a disciple? Listen, here's the deal. All of us know, because the scriptures have told us, in Romans chapter 8, we, we, we have been told, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That, we, we know where we're headed. That's the end game that God has in our lives. Yes, you are predestined. Predestined to what? To be like Jesus. That's the final goal that God has for your life. And I, and I, I want you to think right now, take a moment to assess your life and compare it to Jesus. How are you doing in this specific area of your life, in your willing submission to God? As we consider the story of Zechariah, we are going to see him wrestling with the will of God. We're going to see him, him struggling to embrace what God is saying. And we're going to see that there's a lot of points along the way that we can relate. If you have 
the app open and you're, you're trying to take notes or if you are taking notes on a notebook, you can write these points down. These are our thought folders for today. The title of the message is Reluctant But Willing Submission. Reluctant But Willing Submission. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through verses 25 where we see in Zechariah that Zechariah is... Blameless but barren in verses 5 to 7. Faithful but not expectant in verses 8 to 11. In verses 12 to 18, he is fearful and reluctant. In verses 19 to 22, he is silent and reflective. In verses 23 to 25, he is obedient and productive. Blameless but barren, faithful but not expectant, fearful and reluctant, silent and reflective, obedient and productive. Let's begin by taking a look at the first few verses here in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, we are in Luke's gospel, and the events recorded by Luke have a definite time in history, these are events. They are, they're, they're not stories. They're not parables or fables. We're supposed to gain some moral lesson. It's, it's rooted in history. There was a king at that time. Luke gives us some of the details by orienting us to where we are in the timeline of history. This all took place during the reign of Herod the Great. He was a Roman appointed king who was famous for really two things incredible buildings. He built massive buildings, including finishing the, the temple for, uh, for, the, for Israel, for the Jewish people. But he was also famous for being ruthless. He was absolutely ruthless. He was not really Jewish. He was uh, an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. And he was sort of a wannabe king uh, appointed by Rome. And it was during his lifetime that the king of kings and the lord of lords would be born. Now, Zechariah, who is mentioned in the text here, belonged to one of the 24 priestly divisions or orders. And these were established according to King David's arrangement in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 1 to 10. And and Abijah, the the division that Zechariah is a, a part of his priesthood, uh, is mentioned in the text. He was, he was a, a descendant of Eliezer, the son of Aaron. And he was, uh, Abijah was the, the chief of the eighth of 24 of these priestly orders. Now, uh, Abijah, interestingly enough, is listed with the priests and the Levites who returned with Zerubbabel and Shealtiel after the captivity in Babylon. And so this is, this, you're tracking here, even just in these few words here, these few descriptions, you're seeing that the priesthood has been consistent all the way from the time of Aaron. 
It was affirmed during David. It survived the Babylonian exile and it's still now happening. God is continuing the priesthood and the temple worship during the days of Herod the Great. And here comes Zechariah, one of the priests. Each division of the priests served in the temple twice annually with each session lasting one week. And, and so now Zechariah, we're told in the text, is also married. He's married to a woman with a lineage among the Levites as well. Her name is Elizabeth. Now Zacharias and Elizabeth, like so many Old Testament characters, have meaningful names. Zacharias means the Lord remembers. And Elizabeth, her name means my God is an absolutely faithful one, or my God is an oath. Now these two, whose very names were affirmations of faith, were then married. And though their, their, their marriage looked like a match made in heaven, they are from ministry families, they are serving in the temple, they, they are devoted to God, they come from this long history of, of, of people that serve God. It looks like a, a match made in heaven. There are practical problems, though, in their marriage. One commentary I read captured it well when it said this. Most Jews did not believe in eternal life. For them, immortality came through their children and heirs. It was through them that one lived on forever. So although righteous, Zacharias and Elizabeth had no children, and were thus suffering the ultimate disappointment and humiliation. The commentator says this as a side note. If you think that life is fair, the Bible does not encourage you in that view. Isn't that a great note? Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful to God. They come from ministry families, have a long spiritual heritage and a pedigree. But despite their faithfulness to God and all of their service, they have not been able to bear children. Now later in the passage, we shall see that they, they, they prayed for children. They prayed to be able to bear children. And, and, and they asked God again and again, Lord, please give us a child. But, but now they are old. And the time for bearing children has passed. Zechariah will have no prodigy, no one to carry on his name. Elizabeth bore the distinction, according to our text, of being barren. And even in the English, we pick up on the nuance there, don't we? The idea of being barren is like a plot of land where the soil is unable to grow crops. And Elizabeth is branded for the whole of her life as being unfruitful unable to produce. Now you have to wonder what it was like for them. How many, how many times did they try to figure out a way to convince God to do what they wanted through the fervency of their prayer, through the passion with which they sought him, on their faces, in their bedrooms, on their knees before God. God, please, please, please give us a child. But despite their faithfulness to God and all of their service, they have not been able to bear children. 
How many times did they argue with God to try and convince him that maybe it made him look bad if he didn't answer their prayers? Lord, this looks bad for you. I mean, here we are. We're faithfully serving you. We're being obedient. We're doing everything that you asked us to do. And and yet we offer up this simple request. And you hung the sun and the moon and the stars. You could fix anything that you want to do. You can give us a child. And here your faithful servants are unheard by you. This looks bad to, for you. And, and really, God, I, I, I care about your reputation. That's what I really care about. How many disappointments did they face? How many close calls were there? Honey, I'm late. I think I'm pregnant. And the days click by, and the days click by. And all of a sudden, disappointment comes. How many times did that happen? How many tearful conversations and moments of frustration and pain had they shared throughout the years in marriage, moments or seasons where they blamed one another? It's your fault. Why can't you bear children? Can you see the conflict? This is real life. These are the kinds of things that really happen. Yet from their perspective, none of their pain seemed to move the heart of God at all. He is unswayed. Can you relate? You ever want to see God do something that you know he can do? Ever pray for a miracle? Ever pray for a healing only to see that prayer go unanswered and fall flat? Ever ask God? Ever ask for him to intervene before calamity breaks out only to watch calamity and pain come marching relentlessly into life? Have you ever wanted God to want your will over his own? How perfectly human that is. And as we look at the life of Zechariah, what we see in him and Elizabeth is that they are blameless, but they are also barren. They're faithful to do what God has required of them, but... God has not met their desires. This was the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. They prayed, they served, they stayed faithful to one another and to God. And these details were recorded by Luke for a couple of reasons. The text even tells us in verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. It told the original recipients of this gospel account that Zachariah and Elizabeth were not being punished by God. His silence was not due to their sin. They were blameless, but they remained barren. And now they're they're told, verse 7 tells us, uh, the time for bearing, uh, and now, uh, verse 7 tells us, the time for bearing children had passed them by. And at some point, 
they left off praying for God to bring a child. At some point, they stopped asking God for a baby. It became painfully obvious to them that God's will was not the same as theirs. And they, so they continued to serve. They continued to be blameless. But it was past the time of asking. Maybe some of you can relate to that part. Maybe that part of the story is something that you identify with. The, the moment where you stop asking God to do something because it seems painfully obvious that he isn't going to do it. The moment where you go, okay, I guess I'm, I guess I'm done asking for this. The moment where you've knocked and the doors did not open, you, you've, you've sought and you did not find. So rather than continue to feel the anxiety about God's lack of movement, you decide just, just to stop asking. Not from a position of trust that, that he knows best, a position that says, God, I trust you that if you aren't fulfilling this desire and I've asked and you're not doing it, you're faithful and you know better and I trust you, not from that place, but from a different place. A place of pain. The kind of pain that says it's not sustainable for me to keep being disappointed by you, God. I'll, I'll keep being faithful. I'm not going anywhere. But I gotta stop asking because my heart can't take the disappointment anymore. You're God. You do whatever you want. I'm just gonna bide my time. And this is where we find Zachariah, blameless but barren. And he's faithful. But he's not expected. Notice verses 8 through 11. Faithful but not expected. Verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So there's these 24 divisions of priests in Israel, far more priests uh, than, than are actually needed for the service. Now, each division took a yearly turn to serve for a week. Only one priest at a time had the honor of burning incense. And it was an important task. It was, it was symbolic, really, of, of the prayers of God being offered, or prayers up to God being offered to him. And, and the idea was that the smoke of the incense, it smelled really good. And so prayers are being prayed. And, and as the prayers are being prayed, the smoke is going up in the, in the temple next to the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the place of God's presence. And, and, and all of the incense is mixing with the prayers. And, and it's as if God would smell the incense and go, mm, that smells good. And he, they, he would be favorable towards answering those prayers. That's the idea. So it was an important task. There were so many priests that this special honor might only come once in a lifetime. Or, or perhaps not at all to some. Now, 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 for just a moment, consider the irony of what is taking place in this passage. The priest whose prayers have not been answered 
is now offering incense. The lot has been cast. He's the one who's been chosen to go and burn incense in the holy place. He is in front of the veil, the, the curtain that kept people from seeing the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. The priest with the unanswered prayers is now standing as close as you can get to the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant. And he is offering prayers for others mixed with the fragrance of incense on behalf of the people outside. And they're outside praying as well. He's faithfully carrying out the duties of a priest. But honestly, when you look at the text, what you see is he's not really expecting anything. He's not expecting an angel to show up. He's not expecting a word from the Lord. He's not expecting anyone. He's just going about his business, not expecting God to respond in any way, shape, or form. He doesn't expect a lot. We, we can surmise that because of what happens in the next verses. Zechariah doesn't expect the angel. He doesn't expect that God heard his prayers or even cared about them. He doesn't expect that God wanted to help the elderly have babies. It's completely outside of his framework. It's like, God doesn't want old people giving birth. That doesn't even fit in my mind. So Zachariah is faithful in the present, but he doesn't expect much from God. Now, isn't that how life tends to be for the majority of people? Have you noticed that? I mean, most of life is mundane, isn't it? It's long periods of normalcy, punctuated by short moments of the unexpected. In my mind's eye, I, I, I could see Zachariah. He like, gets up, he puts on his priestly garments, he sits down for coffee. He begins scrolling through a scroll. As he sips his coffee next to Elizabeth, she, she's asking him about the, about the day, okay, about what time do you expect that you'll be home from the from work today, I know that you're serving in the temple and they're having conversation about no awareness whatsoever about what is about to take place. He walks through the city. Everything's fine and dandy. Hey, Chaim, how are you? You're right. He's walking through the village. It's just a normal, normal day. No expectation of the miraculous. No expectation to meet with God. No expectation that God will respond to prayers he stopped praying a long, long time ago. He doesn't expect much from God. Even more than that, he has no idea that the prayers he prayed matter to God, no consideration of the fact that today would, be, would mark the beginning of a long interruption in his life with the addition of a child. Zechariah, like most of us, wants the will of God, but he is unaware of how much of an interruption the will of God can actually be. You know, oftentimes in the sanctuary, we sing songs like, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take every moment I'm awake Lord have your way in me we sing those songs with readiness but how serious are we about God actually accomplishing that praise I mean 
what, what could change if after singing that song to God, all of a sudden God's like, done. I'm going to make that happen. What, what might actually be the consequences of having that? I mean, wouldn't you sing that song differently if you thought God would make that happen? Would you maybe put some qualifiers in there, some, 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 uh, some out clauses where you're like, so long as it doesn't involve too much pain and suffering... What if God said, okay, you said you wanted every breath and every moment for me to have my way in you? I'm, I'm going to answer that prayer perfectly. You see, we want God to be glorified, but we don't want things to change. We want God to move powerfully, but we don't really expect him to show up and start monkeying with our lives. We want his will We just don't want to have to be uncomfortable. Perhaps like Zechariah, we live faithful lives that don't actually expect God to change anything. And then when God does do something like Zechariah, we are fearful and reluctant. Verses 12 through 18, Zechariah is fearful and reluctant. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have great again, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the hearts of the fathers, to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. It kind of makes me chuckle every time I think about moments in the Bible where people are permitted to encounter the unseen realm. I mean, virtually every time this happens, an angel shows up or some you know, invisible being or there's an encounter with the, the, the spiritual reality that is all around us all the time, even right now in this sanctuary, real spiritual battles are taking place right now for your attention Over the word of God, the birds of the air are trying to steal away the seeds of the gospel. That's happening presently right now. We're totally unaware. And any time a person is made aware of that, the immediate first thing that an angel has to say to them is, don't be afraid. (laughs) Because that's the reality. Like, don't be afraid. Zechariah is just going about the tasks of the temple. He's, he's offering incense in the holy place, but he doesn't expect a response from God. All of a sudden, an angel appears on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, to be fair, several things make this a scary encounter. First of all is the fact that this shatters reality, doesn't it? It shatters reality. He's, he's just going through the motions of a holy life. But now... A representative from the throne of God has appeared 
in his presence. He did not walk in, he just appeared. This is not how normal life works. How often I, I think about this reality in our lives, the limitations of our powers of perception. As humans, we can only perceive a, a, a narrow bandwidth of light and of sound. The typical human eye is only capable of perceiving light at wavelengths between 390 and 750 nanometers. Of course, there's plenty of other creatures in the world that are capable of perceiving light with frequencies outside of that band with creatures that can see perfectly at nighttime, for example. Our ability to hear is limited between 20 and 20,000 hertz. Our ability to smell is obviously outmatched by the senses of all kinds of creatures, as is our ability to taste There are a great many things that are far beyond the human capability to perceive. In other words, there is a whole other reality to the world that we presently know that is completely imperceptible to us as humans. And and this is just what we can taste, this is just what we can test, This is just what we can touch. This is what we can prove by theoretical science. But man, it gets so much weirder than that. We we, we can only perceive in four dimensions. Length, width, height, and time. That's our four-dimensional reality. But physicists now believe that there are as many as ten dimensions. Life and existence is so much stranger than we can possibly imagine. And in the mercy of God, he has not permitted us to see beyond the limitations we currently have. So, when an angel, a being from the fifth or seventh or eighth or tenth dimension just appears from out of nowhere, it shatters reality. How did this happen? This doesn't make sense. What is going on here? This is what happened to Zechariah. Second thing that makes this scary is that the, the temple was deadly serious business. I mean, if you do something wrong in the temple, the consequences are you die. You think about Nadab and Abihu. They were supposed to take fire from the altar. and They didn't. They, they pulled out their 7-Eleven Bic lighters instead. And God smoked him right there in the temple. Think about Uzzah, who, who tried to catch the Ark of the Covenant as it was toppling on a cart. And God smoked him right there. That's it. Dunzo. Immediately. The high priest. Remember? The high priest, once a year, he's allowed to go beyond the curtain to the holiest of holies. What's the big threat there? If you have any unconfessed sin, you die when you cross that barrier. Heavy duty. So here he is in the temple, lighting up incense. He's thinking everything's cool. Just going about my priestly business. I'm just doing the thing. Nothing crazy ever happens here. All of a sudden, bammo, an angel shows up. And it completely freaks him out. Like, is this what happens before I die? That's what he's thinking. Understandably, Zechariah is freaked out. 
But notice what the angel says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Wait a minute, Zechariah must have thought. That's not what I was burning incense for. I haven't prayed that prayer since I was young. It's been a long time since I've prayed that prayer. I mean, we, we have been old for a while now. It, it's been a bit since I've even thought about having kids. But though Zachariah and Elizabeth had not asked for a child, God had not forgotten when they did. And God had been patiently waiting for just the right moment to come through. And the angel tells Zachariah that the child that his wife will bear will be a special child. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. He'll be raised under the conditions of a Nazarite vow. He'll be completely set apart for God. More than that, he's going to have a very specific ministry where he will herald the coming Messiah, the promised king of Israel. He will be the forerunner who heralds his arrival. He'll live in the power of the spirit of Elijah. But notice what happens next. Zechariah's response is so, again, so perfectly human. Verse 19. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. It's almost as if Zechariah takes stock of where he is in life. He's like, hey, hey, uh, I saw the commercial on TV for the 800 number with the little blue pill and I, I never called. I'm, I'm past that moment in life. And my wife, yeah. Let's just say she's not exactly ready to birth children at this moment. This is unexpected. He sees his wife as being past the stage of life because women have babies when they're young, not when they're old. In addition, there's a reluctance to the will of God that is present in Zechariah. It could be reluctance to get his hopes up again could be a reluctance to his circumstances changing so drastically this late in life. Whatever it is, he's, he's pushing back against the angels. Say, if this, if this is really going to happen, I need some sort of proof, some sort of guarantee. Think about this for a moment. Zechariah is so solidified in his perception of what God can and cannot do that the presence of a divine being in the temple is not enough to budge him to think about that reality. Quick question to ask, what does it take for God to convince you what his will is? How hard does God have to lean on you to get you to cave to the pressure and obey? Does it take a breaking point to get you to bend? Do you fight God right up to the end? Or is reading his word enough for you? You see it and you're like, that's what he said. I'm doing that. Is the slightest moment of conviction from the Holy Spirit enough to cause you to surrender? Can you identify with the, the struggle of Zechariah here? It's not easy, is it? 
in the real nuts and bolts of life. Verses 19 to 20, lastly, he is silent and reflective. 19 to 22, and the angel said, answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Notice the terse response of the angel. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. If he sent me here, what I say is good. And since you don't believe my words, I'm going to make it so you can't speak. Till all of this takes place. Till all of this happens. I love what the Geneva Bible says in its notes. It says, we must not measure God's promises by our weak senses. Oh, man, that's powerful stuff. Well, Zachariah comes out of the temple. He's unable to speak. People realize that he's had a vision. He's trying to communicate by playing charades. Not everybody understands him. Finally, he finishes up when he goes home. Notice, though, that the silence is by design. It's similar to what happened to Paul of Tarsus. He was on the road to Damascus. He's made blind. He's deprived of certain senses so that he can think about the reality of what has taken place. So he can focus all of his energy on what God has been saying. He's left to ponder and think about the veracity of the promises of God rather than his own senses. And in his silence, his wheels begin to turn. His heart moves from a place of reluctance to a place of obedience. Then come the final verses of our passage, verses 23 and 25, where Zechariah is obedient and productive. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So, when he went home, unable to speak, He's thinking about what God has said through the angel and he begins to act in obedience. To be fair, they're nervous about it. They don't tell anybody for five months. They just wait. They've been disappointed before. It's not easy to trust God after you've been disappointed. But eventually, they do land in a place of trust. They make the announcement. They eventually will call their son John, which means gift from God. Just like the angel had said. And attached to his birth was the knowledge that he would be the forerunner who would usher in the long-awaited Messiah. They wrestled with the will of God in their lives throughout and they reluctantly came to the place of surrender and submission to the will of God. So here's a few final thoughts about what we can do when like Zachariah and Elizabeth we find ourselves reluctant to willingly submit to God. Here are four things that I want you to write down. When we don't want God's will, there are four things we can do. First of all, confess like Jesus. Second of all, pray like Jesus. Thirdly, surrender like Jesus. Fourthly, see and trust like Jesus. First of all, confess like Jesus. Remember Matthew 26, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he will go to the cross and bear the sins of the world. He prayed three times the exact same prayer. Three times. Why? Because apparently, even Jesus wrestled in his humanity with desiring discomfort when it was the will 
of his father. And do you remember what he prayed? He said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from before me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He was honest about it. This is not what I want. He confessed his fear and his doubt. If we're to grow in the likeness of Jesus, we will have to do what Jesus did. We have to be honest about our fear and our doubts. We'll have to come to moments where we're on our knees with honest hearts confessing the truth. We don't want the suffering. We despise the shame, but we choose what God wants more than what we want, even though it goes against our desires. Confess like Jesus. Also pray like Jesus. Jesus taught his disciples, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then in Gethsemane, that's exactly what Jesus did, didn't he? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It is an act of submission to recognize that you don't want what God wants. And to do it anyway. That's worship. It's not a failure. It's obedient surrender to the will of God. Thirdly, surrender like Jesus. Jesus didn't do this one time. He did it three times. Why? Because the desire kept popping up. (laughs) And he went back and he did it over and over again. Not my will, not my will, not my will. He made a willful choice to submit his heart, even though it would be spiritually, emotionally, and physically painful. And lastly, see and trust like Jesus. Jesus saw his life through the lens of God's kingdom. He placed his own story within the broader story arc of redemption. Instead of seeing his father as abusive or neglectful or uncaring, he decided to trust his father. He's like, I don't see all the details. I don't even like all the details. I don't even like what's coming. But I know that my life fits into your plan and what you have determined. And you're good. So even though I can't see it right now, I trust you. But the pain of this moment is worth it. Jesus saw his life in its eternal fullness. He saw that his sufferings were not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. He saw that those who sow in tears reap in joy. He saw that sorrow may last the night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus calls us to surrender our hearts to him. And it is the battle that we all face to willingly submit our hearts to God even when our desires are contrary to him. Amen. As the worship team comes up, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the opportunity that we've had to consider Zechariah and what it means to willingly submit ourselves to you. Lord, would you take now your word Make it alive in our hearts. Would you take this from being theory to being practice, that that we would see your example, Jesus, in the garden as you laid down your will, as you surrendered, and you you didn't want to suffer. You didn't like what was coming. You despised the shame. You hated the suffering of the cross, and yet... You were surrendered to the authority of God and you entrusted yourself to his plan of redemption. Lord, may we 
in every circumstance, find ourselves coming to the same place of willingly surrendering ourselves to you. Shape us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.